Thank you so much for joining us again today. Um, our passage comes from Luke chapter 20. I'm going to read the whole chapter because that context is really going to set us up well for our focus today. So hear now God's word for us from Luke chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone... It will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at the very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God. 
being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, this is a rich text um, full of various teachings, um, but a concentrated picture of your brilliance. May you, in this moment and in this time, guide us to a deeper understanding of who you are and so a deeper trust into what you're calling us into. We pray this by the power of the Spirit and in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I think we've all had that moment when we realize we're in the presence of someone smarter than ourselves. You know, for example, people like Magnus Carlsen. He was a chess grandmaster by just age 13. Yes, 13. And a world-class champion, world-class chess champion many times over, such that now at age 29, he holds the record for the longest unbeaten run in classical chess. And so we marvel at humans like this, marvel at humans like Magnus Carlsen, because they outpace our IQ and our EQ. They find solutions where others see just a jumbled mess. They make unprecedented calculated risks toward victory. They see what others miss. For example, the new series on Netflix entitled Queen's Gambit. Chess experts want to know what Magnus knows about the players on the show. They want to hear him detail out every move and how he thinks it should go or would have gone. We can't get enough of folks like that. You see, when you realize someone's smarter than you, you lean in more. When they speak, you actually stop to listen. You approach more open with questions rather than coming with prepared statements. You're willing to be corrected more because you recognize they may see something that you don't. Their encouragement as well, it goes deeper down into the soul when someone is smarter than you. Which is why we turn our attention to someone who at age 12 confounded the thought leaders of his day. People were astounded at his insight and confused as to where he came from. Literally, this boy was so engrossed in conversation and debate that his family lost him for a while in the temple complex. In Luke's Gospel account, chapter 2, we find that this boy is none other than the 12-year-old Jesus, and his parents are none other than Mary and Joseph. And today we're actually going to find Jesus back in the temple, the place of the scholars, the thought leaders, and the religious teachers, and everyone, everyone's trying to beat Jesus, to trap him, to catch him, manipulate him, a checkmate of ancient proportions. But no one can. Why? Put simply, Jesus is smarter than us. Jesus is smarter than us. He has a higher IQ, 
a more in-depth EQ, you name it. He knows all the moves before we make them. And that's good news because as we continue our journey to rediscover Jesus' kingdom, if he's the king, he better be wicked smart. And if he is wicked smart, in a very righteous way, our call is to learn and to submit to him. Well, in our context here in the passage, we've seen that Jesus has been welcomed into Jerusalem as the Messiah by a few Jewish pilgrims singing praise to his name. And where does he go to usher in his kingdom agenda? Does he go to a throne? Does he go to the military complex? No, he goes to the temple to teach. And there are all different kinds of groups who are coming to try and trap Jesus around these hot button issues. They're so tired and sick sick and tired of people trying to take their disciples away from them. And often we can look at these issues that are across chapter 20 in isolation. And frankly, there's some really amazing stuff here that each one of these could be just isolated, be a whole sermon and a whole series in and of itself. But what we miss when we go so micro is actually the bigger picture that Luke is portraying before us. This is bigger than just a few theological questions to add to our worldview. As Richard and James in Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes say, this is which, by the way, that's an exceptional book to help us understand the biblical world in which the biblical text was written. It wasn't written for 21st century postmodern Americans, but in an ancient context with ancient hearers with different values and even a different framework on how to perceive of reality. They label this as an honor contest as to who is worthy to actually teach. It's not just about truth, capital T, but it's about who deserves to teach. Who actually has the honorable position of having and earning the ear of the people? And Jesus, fascinatingly enough here, in three moves, corners them into a checkmate. They go three moves, which highlight three reasons why Jesus is actually smarter than us. And that's what we're going to see in the text. And then we're going to end with how you and I are to respond to the unparalleled brilliance of this Jesus. Okay? So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And we're going to look at these three different moves. So first, let's look at move number one. And it has everything to do with Jesus' authority. You see Jesus there in the temple. And you have the temple leadership, the big dogs, the scribes, the Pharisees. They don't like Jesus teaching on their turf. Why? Well, because they see Jesus taking away all their students, their income, their prestige, their honor. I mean, imagine you walk into a classroom, getting ready to teach, and nearly half, if not more, of your class is missing. That takes the wind out of your sails and drops your ego down a couple notches. And so they come to Jesus ready for a fight. And we see in chapter 20, verse 2, they come to Jesus and say, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, what we need to understand right here in verse 2 is that this is not a genuine question. These aren't genuine skeptics seeking the truth. Instead, they're trying to shame Jesus in a very public way. For example, it'd be like if you came to church on a Sunday morning and stood up in the middle of a sermon and said, That's you again? What gives you the right to tell me what to believe? It's a challenging space that means to put the speaker on defense. It's rude. It's undermining. It's awkward. And everybody who'd gathered to hear from Jesus is watching this go down. And the hope of these religious leaders is that Jesus has this massive meltdown that results in him losing honor and and losing face. 
And so they would then gain their students back again. Now they're feeling pretty good when they pose this question. And the reason for that is because they've got better resumes, they've got a better pedigree, they have better pronunciation, Jesus has like this backwoods Galilean accent, okay? And they really think that there's no way that Jesus is going to be able to hang with them. But that's their first mistake. Because Jesus won't be baited into making a foolish move. He doesn't answer their question, not in the way they were anticipating. Instead, Jesus poses his own question, which is a shrewd move and, frankly, a common move among rabbis. So Jesus basically says, okay, okay, you want to talk authority. Let's talk JB, John the Baptist. John was a pretty popular figure in his day. Luke had actually brought him up earlier in his gospel account. We'd spent time studying John the Baptist. And it was really the people's perspective versus the religious leaders. The people loved John the Baptist, and they thought his prophecies were on point. But the religious teachers didn't like John that much because, frankly, just John criticized them a lot and their hypocrisy and their arrogance and their unwillingness to actually care about what God genuinely cared about. And so Jesus, he raises this question. He says, basically, where did John get his authority to preach about repentance? Was it from heaven? Was it from God, in other words? Or was it from man? And the religious leaders, they're in a bind. The reason why they find themselves in such a quandary is because John baptized Jesus. So whatever they say about John, they're in essence saying about Jesus as well. And so they kind of huddle up in this hilarious kind of moment where they're like, hey, give us a sec. We need to regroup and talk about this issue. And they basically run through, you see kind of their internal processing. If we say that you know, John's baptism was, was from man, uh, then the people will kill us. But if we say actually that, that God was in, at work at what John was doing, then actually Jesus wins because then John's baptism of, baptism of Jesus is validated. Therefore, Jesus is the true Messiah. And they will not, they will not, no matter what, even if they think that's more true than the other, they cannot let Jesus win. It's a zero-sum game for them in the shape of honor. And so their answer is, we don't know. They don't like the outcomes of the truth, so they plead agnosticism. And so Jesus' response is, fine, you won't answer me, I won't answer you. And Jesus' first move is absolutely brilliant. The, The teachers of Israel, they lose honor in front of this massive crowd. Since they won't answer publicly what everyone knew publicly, that John was from God, they are seen as cowardly. They are not the the teachers of Israel who come with the law of God as the only standard of what they will speak, but instead they realize they're engaged in political conversation, just vying for pandering and seeking to gain power. You see, Jesus is smarter than us because, number one, his authority is higher. These teachers, they want to see Jesus' resume, his school, his pedigree, his degree, his credentials. Tell us why we should listen to you, Jesus. Tell everybody who's listening why they should listen to you. And Jesus' response is, my authority is from God. For example, when you want to cultivate trust in a position that you hold, we quote from an authority in a particular field that we think will be able to lend us some honor or credence behind our statement. This is debate 101. But Jesus doesn't have to point to anyone else other than the Father. Now, he does so. His miracles point to the astounding nature of who he is. 
He comes with the, the declaration that he is the fulfillment of certain scriptures and so on. But he isn't just, the, he isn't just described by genius. Jesus himself defines truth. And he knows the truth better than anyone. His authority is higher than any other human being or institution this world over. And the moment we're unwilling to acknowledge Jesus' authority, which to be clear, don't hear me saying that we can't come to Jesus with our questions. That's not the point of this first move. But instead, when we are unwilling to acknowledge his authority to teach us, eventually we will look foolish. So let me ask you, are you willing to submit to his authority? It's higher than yours. Okay, moving along, move number two. Now, in move number two, the religious leaders are super ticked. No one wants to look like a fool, but they looked like fools in front of everyone. But Jesus goes one step further. He actually tells a story, what is often called a parable, and it really come de comes down hard on these religious leaders. They are perceived and portrayed as these awful characters against God's purposes. And the result is they want blood. Look with me, chapter 20, verse 20, once again. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, which of course means they weren't, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They want to catch Jesus saying something on record and then be able to bring it to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, to get Jesus killed. And so they bring a perfect hot-button issue, politics. Woo-wee! You know, you thought that was just a 21st century kind of reality. But it's always been around. And they send spies to act nice, to speak with flattery in order to catch Jesus off his guard. And so they ask Jesus this. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And that's an audacious move. Nothing, there's nothing more visceral than talking about Rome and the intense taxes that she was bringing upon the nation of Israel. I mean, once again, you think politics was divisive now, you multiply that at least by 10, maybe even more. You had these polarizing groups who are listening to Jesus. You had some people listening who were at that moment plotting to overthrow the Roman government. And then you had other folks who were listening in, ready to kind of squeal on Jesus if he said anything against the Roman government. But look what Jesus' move is. We read verse 23, but he, speaking of Jesus, perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Do you see it? This is absolutely brilliant. The crowd would have recognized that they were trying to trap Jesus. So everybody knows what's happening. And Jesus could have chosen not to answer this question and actually still maintained his honor. But instead, he asks for a coin, a silver denarius. Now, once the questioner hands him the coin, it's over. And some of you may be thinking, what are you talking about? Yes, 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 Jesus does point out that Caesar can have his coin back. It's his face that's on there, so why not give him his coin back? 
But whose image is on you, Jesus says, right? Your, your heart, where is your allegiance? It should be given to God because God's image is on you. But more than that, what we can often miss is that the coin had an inscription on it about Caesar, declaring him Savior and God. They're in the temple. Don't miss these comments. Everybody who had been reading this text or hearing it or in that moment and during when it was actually happening would have been understanding what was going on. The whole reason they have money changers in the temple, of which we saw Jesus turning over tables earlier, is because they're not supposed to have those blasphemous coins in the temple that declare that Caesar is a different God than the God of Israel. Local areas were allowed to make their own coins per the Roman government, but Rome backed its own currency, whereas some of the local currencies would be shaved down by crooks and would be less secure. So Jesus is pointing out that the guy who asks the question, he likes to use Rome's coins because they are secured, but he doesn't want to pay the empire to secure them. And in this one moment, by asking for a coin, he's revealed that this questioner is a hypocrite to the core. And everyone sees it. And this group, once again, loses honor because they're not integral and it's on full display. Remember, on each of these particular teachings, we could do a whole sermon. Each move of Jesus is that brilliant. Which brings us back to our point, okay? Jesus is smarter than us because, number two, his understanding is deeper. His understanding is deeper. Jesus, he doesn't just engage our questions. He actually engages our hearts in the midst of our questions. Do you see that? In verse 23, what do, what do we read? He perceived their craftiness. And that informs how Jesus goes about his answer. This is his brilliance. His IQ isn't just off the charts, but his EQ is supernatural. He doesn't just understand the questions better than we do. He understands our hearts, the reasons why we ask those questions, when we raise those questions, why those doubts came up in that particular moment because we really want to justify certain actions in our lives. He sees us for what we actually are pursuing. And so the question coming off the page here is, are you pursuing him honestly? Are you coming to him honestly? Do you really want what he has to offer? Because listen, he knows and he sees. His understanding is deeper. But let's look at the final move, move number three. There's one more move, and it's a new group actually, the Sadducees. Another religious group, and they have political desires as well. They want to have control in Jerusalem and lead Israel in a certain way, but they're different from the Pharisees And that out of all of the Old Testament, they only believed that a few books were actually authoritative, that there were a few books that only God was involved in, basically the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they also don't believe in the resurrection. This is it. The life you have now is all that you have. And so they try a question on Jesus that has stumped many of what have called the resurrectionists, right? In chapter 20, verses 28 through 33, we get the specifics of that question. And here's Jesus's response. Or here's actually the situation in which they're kind of portraying before Jesus as a quandary. There's this exception in the law of Moses that provides care for single widows. So imagine a guy dies, then his brother 
the brother of the dead or the, the widow, and was actually to come alongside and care for her and help provide offspring for her in order that that offspring would then provide for her over the rest of her life. The Sadducees take this law and they tease it out times seven. So imagine this happens seven times in a row. Naturally, if you're the eighth brother and seven of your brothers have died and they've all been married to this same widow, you've got a few questions on the top of your mind when it comes to how to navigate this. But the argument is, if the resurrection is real, then it leads to, to serious absurdities. Like, are all of these brothers now married to this woman into eternity? Therefore, their response is, there can be no such thing as the resurrection. And here's Jesus' response in verses 34 through 37. And I want to actually take his response in reverse and look at the second part first. Jesus says, you know, hey, Moses told you about the resurrection. You just didn't see it. You don't even know what you don't know. You see, God doesn't call himself a former God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God doesn't make promises that end with death. Rather, those who die in relationship with him are alive forever. And this is what Moses has been pointing to all along. So that's the first part, or the second part of the argument. The first part really throws them for a loop because what Jesus says is that, hey, you don't know what you should know, but you also don't even know what you don't know. Jesus comes back at them and says, you think the resurrection life has marriage and has widows? If you think God is going to do exactly the same things in the next life as to what he's doing here, you just aren't imagining big enough what God's kingdom is all about and what his restoration work will be and how life with him for eternity is even bigger than the categories we can bring to it. Verses 39 through 40, in response to Jesus' brilliant engagement of their question, we read, And some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Check and mate. You see, Jesus is smarter than us, not only because his authority is higher and his understanding is deeper, but also because his kingdom is bigger. A little while ago, um, Ava, my firstborn, my daughter, told me she didn't want to go to college. I said, why, why don't you want to go to college, sweetie? And she said, because... She never wants to move out of our house. Now, I both loved this and was simultaneously really terrified. My first thought, right, is like, you can't live here forever. I can't afford that. What's going on? You need to move out. Um, and then there's, you know, so much out there in the world you don't even know about yet. There's adventures. There's lessons. There's opportunities. But that's what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees. You don't even know the half of it. His kingdom is bigger than we imagine. And what he wants to invite us into. He's so smart, smarter than us. His kingdom is so astounding. But in the midst of all this, what we've been learning, if Jesus is really this smart, then you have to let Jesus teach you. Let Jesus teach you. It's why we're doing this series around rediscovering Jesus' kingdom. Because we don't have it all figured out. And frankly, we easily forget. So let him reveal the reality he's bringing to bear on all of life right now. So how do we do that? You know, as we've seen, it's more than just posing questions. It's the posture in questioning. 
If we genuinely want the truth, we must be an honest learner. And as we saw the three groups that came to Jesus with questions, they came with agendas, they came with goals, desires, biases. And here's the deal. To be an honest learner isn't actually to cast all your biases aside. For one, that's impossible. We all come with a social location and certain biases. Instead, we just need to be aware of them. And specifically, be aware of three common biases we all have when coming to learn from the Grand Master, Jesus. And so I just want to walk through these three just so that we're aware of them, that we all have as we approach and seek to learn from Jesus. The first bias is the comfort bias. We all have a desire to be comfortable and to avoid pain, whether that's psychological, physiological, you name it. The Pharisees were unwilling to engage Jesus honestly, we saw in our text, because they were more caught up in the consequences of truth rather than the truth itself. And we all do this. We can shake our heads at the Pharisees, but this is also something true within us. This is why Jesus is just as concerned with what we love as much as he is with what we declare to know. For what the heart wants, the mind finds justifiable and the hands find doable. The best way to navigate this bias isn't to pretend we don't have it. Rather, it's first to be willing to challenge your desires. When you doubt a claim of Jesus, why do you doubt it? Put the same level of scrutiny to your doubts and the timing of your doubts as you do Jesus' claims. You know, you're saying, hey, why do I doubt this claim about Jesus now in my life? Is there something that it's challenging that's core to who I am? Is it going to cost me something? And so I really want it to not be true because it would be more comfortable if it wasn't true than if it is? What about your wants and your life situation has changed? Second, we have to surround ourselves with other followers of Jesus who will call us out on our comfort bias when we let comfort guide our life more than Jesus' authority. You see, hearing Jesus' word and submitting to his authority is done in community. We cannot hope to combat this bias on our own or we'll constantly make decisions that lead to a more comfortable life rather than a more faithful one. So where is your comfort bias keeping you from hearing the truth? Don't let temporary comfort cost you eternal comfort. Comfort bias, that's number one. Number two, confirmation bias. You've probably heard of this one at some point in your life. Everyone likes to be right, to be seen as right. And we want what we want to be right. And so, when new evidence presents itself, rather than challenging our worldview, we naturally figure out how it confirms what we already believe. This is crucial to so much of the conspiracy theories that we heard about this last year. No matter what evidence was presented, to the contrary, there was an easy, justifiable framework to support the position one already held. One of the best ways we do this is we weigh certain parts of evidence that actually affirm our current held viewpoint and actually downplay contrary evidence that challenge our broader framework. Now, the best way to navigate confirmation bias is allow Jesus to constantly challenge what you think you know. When you come to a passage or teaching from or about Jesus, ask yourself this, what if I was wrong and what if Jesus was right? And just go down the path. What if I was wrong and what if Jesus was right? And then once again, allow others in your life to challenge your viewpoints. Sermons are a place this is meant to happen in the church community, where those who've been gifted and confirmed to come and actually explain the scriptures 
are to actually challenge the worldviews of the congregation that have been infiltrated by the broader world. Community group or Bible study conversations are where that is supposed to happen as well. This is why having a healthy skepticism is actually really good in the church. You see, we can't be afraid of challenging our viewpoints. And if Jesus' understanding is truly deeper and we truly want to know the truth, then let it lead you. Let his word be the final word and listen when others push. Okay, so that's the confirmation bias that we need to be aware of. And then number three, the last one, the agreeable bias. You see, no one likes to be told what to do. We'd rather agree with someone's logic and land in the same place on our own terms rather than trust someone first. And so we tell ourselves, you know what, once I agree, once I figured all this out, once I'm on the same page with Jesus, then I'll listen. Well, I want to first ask, what if that's just your comfort bias talking? But let's say it's not, okay? Let's say it's not your comfort bias. That's not the way actually Jesus works. To combat the agreeable bias, we have to take a risk on Jesus. So try obeying him first, trusting him first. Even when you disagree and see what happens, even if it's uncomfortable, what if it's better? Jesus invites us to trust him. Spend time with him and his people first, then we'll grow in understanding. You see, we want accuracy. That's what we want. We want accuracy, we want knowledge. Without relationship. Because it still gives us control. We want ideas, we want proof and simplicity. But Jesus came with authority. Knowledge in relationship, insight, coherence, complexity, when we actually walk with him as king. You see, he wants to show you more than just truth. He has a bigger kingdom. He wants to show you the way, the truth, and the life. But it comes in walking with him. This is part of the reason why we started the formed.life, which if you haven't joined us, you still can. You go to the formed.life and you can sign up right there, or you can go to the website every day and follow along. Letting Jesus teach you is actually a daily journey that is more than just spiritual and unspiritual training, more than Sunday and Monday, more than relationships and knowledge. It's letting Jesus shape you into the kind of person who can actually receive truth, the kind of person who can live into true reality and all of life for eternity with others. And Jesus is the only one worthy to guide us into becoming that kind of person. You see, we should and, and can come to Jesus with our questions. But more than that, Jesus should be able to come and question us. That's how actually his teaching in chapter 20 ends, with Jesus asking a question. A reality that they completely missed about the Messiah. When Jesus teaches them about himself in verses 41 through 44, that he is both David's son, the promised king, as well as David's lord over David. And so the real question that Jesus poses everyone who'd been posing questions to him is will we receive him for who he actually is? Smarter than us and the king of a kingdom. Someone whose authority is higher, whose understanding is deeper and kingdom is bigger than we can fathom. All of who he is. This astounding king, he went to the cross for all that we are. And he died the worst death on a cross to pay our debt. And then three days later showed that not even the grave could hold him down. His resurrection then validated his claims for who he was. And it's changed the very course of the history of this world. But more than that, this king, he invites us to learn from him. 
come to him, exhausted, hungry, lonely, longing, and humble, and he'll show us how to live. He'll show you the way, the truth, and the life. And he's promised to share his authority, to give his understanding, and to invite us into his kingdom. Now granted, it's going to feel like a cross, but you'll be a part of an indestructible kingdom. And in the end, it'll be more beautiful than we can imagine. And that, when I weigh the evidence, sounds like a really smart move. You see, Jesus is smarter than us. So let's let him teach us. Let's pray. Brilliant Jesus, we come to you humbled by your wisdom, your insight, and your overall framework for reality toward flourishing. We trust that you are who you declare to be, that you are smarter than us, and that you have a deeper insight to the path of flourishing and to the life and life abundant that you've come to bring us. God, may you give us a heart, a posture, a very desire to learn from you and all that you have to teach us. And may you make us into a learning people, a people who are eager for the truth and to do so in love. For we cannot do it without you, for it is only found with you and abiding with you. So God, guide us. Holy Spirit, illuminate your scriptures to us. Heavenly Father, may you be glorified through us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so now we turn to a supper where brilliant King Jesus, he both reveals the truth of who he is and forms us into people over time through eating that become more willing to receive the truth from him. For in common broken bread and in common juice, we remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have these elements available to you, I'd encourage you to grab those and even those who are around you and partake in this meal together in remembrance of him. But before you do so, let us hear the words of institution passed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready. Partake. 